I want you to imagine with me this morning for a moment. You're living in 55 AD. It's been about 25 years since Jesus has resurrected and gone back to heaven. You live on a seaport in a little town there called Corinth in ancient Greece. Corinth, your hometown, is a wild city. Ships will dock there and sailors will get off. And they've been on the ship for weeks and they head straight for the bars and the taverns and the prostitutes. And for 24-7, it is wild. Alcohol is flowing and it's a wild party. It's the Las Vegas of Greece. And you live there. You've heard about a new faith in town. It's a, it's a small group, not in the mainstream for sure. There's only one little church there of, of believers. They follow Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to have died and rose again. There's a little church in town there, and so you decide on this morning, Sunday morning, you get up and you're going to visit the church, First Church of Corinth, actually only Church of Corinth. So you arrive on time and you notice something odd. You walk in the door. Two groups of people, one group over here and one group back there, and it appears that one group is wealthy and the other group very poor. They were serving food on that morning, which they did almost every time that they gathered. It was a, we call them fellowships. They, they call them love feasts. And it appears that the wealthy people got there early to get all the food, and the, the poor people had to work that morning, and they couldn't get there on time. And so all the wealthy gathered and ate up all the food, and it was gone. And they brought alcohol with them, and they were drunk. The poor people just arriving saw this and got angry, started shouting at the wealthy people, and it's going back and forth, and your mouth's kind of open, like going, What in the world's going on? But they gathered everybody and calmed them down. It was time for the service. They began the worship service, not with a welcome or anything like we did. They began with the Lord's Supper. And so they had the, the wine and they had the, the bread, and so. The poor people came thinking, I'll get the wealthy people back. They came and gathered around the Lord's Supper table and guarded it so the wealthy couldn't get there. And they ate it all up from them. That'll get them back. And the wealthy got angry. They didn't get to participate in the Lord's Supper. Now they're shouting back and forth again and angry. And they calmed them all down again. And they start the service. And in the middle of the service, some of the members jump up and start shouting. It sounds like another language. And you're going, what on earth is that? And others stand up and begin also to, to just pray like gibberish. And you're wondering, what on earth is going on? It was a, it was a chaotic, frenzied mess. You hear that the Apostle Paul, who founded that church, has been writing letters back trying to straighten it out. In fact, he told him in one of his letters, whenever you gather on Sunday morning, it's not for the good, it's for the worse. Can you imagine telling a church, it's bad you even have services? And they're having what they call spiritual gifts. You don't know what it's all about or what they are, 
or why they're even important. So you leave. We're into week number four now of a six-week sermon series here at First Baptist entitled Understanding Your Spiritual Gifts. And we've been looking at the spiritual gifts God gives to His believers in Scripture and how sometimes they are abused. I wanted to give you the background of the church in Corinth because today and next Sunday, the background of that church will come into play. It was a mess. So read with me in 1 Corinthians 12 what Paul told them about their spiritual giftedness, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Now, I've shared with you so far that this morning, if there's never been a moment in your life, and I know that's true for some of you, that you've never submitted your life to, to Christ, praying a prayer of faith, receiving Him into your heart and save, as Savior and Lord, if you've never done that, the rest of the message is not for you. In fact, I would like for you to just concentrate on that decision because in a moment you're going to be, you'll have the opportunity to make that decision to follow Christ. But if you've already done that, then the rest of the sermon is for you because it's talking about spiritual gifts and how God gives each one of us His gifts. Now, we looked the first week at some guidelines of using spiritual gifts. We looked at how they're not talents. Talents you may be born with. Talents can be inherited. Maybe your parents have the same talents. Spiritual gifts are not talents. They are given to you at salvation. You weren't born with them. And they have nothing to do with genetics. It's what God's wanted, God wanted you to have. So they're not talents, and they're used to build up the church. They're not for you to be edified. It's for the church to be edified. And God gave you the gifts He wanted you to have. And no one gift is more important than the others. We'll especially see that next Sunday. There are 20 spiritual gifts, according to Scripture, and you'll see them on the screen here. Uh, first of all, called ministry gifts. We saw that week number two, Ephesians 4, there are six of those. Motivational gifts, seven of those. We saw those last Sunday, Romans 12. And today we're going to look at the manifestation gifts, seven of those from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, sometimes the manifestation gifts are subdivided into three groups. Look at those on the screen. Sometimes the manifestation gifts divided into revelation gifts. Those gifts reveal something, wisdom, knowledge, and discernment. Power gifts. These gifts do something, faith, healings, and miracles. And then utterance gifts. These gifts say something, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. 
Now, I don't believe that there's ever been any gifts that are misinterpreted and misused any more than the manifestation gifts. Some groups overemphasize those. Tongues and healings and miracles, and they overemphasize those. Other groups ignore them. And other groups reject them. So, what are we to believe according to Scripture? Well, there are seven manifestation gifts. Let's see them on the screen here. The word of knowledge is first, a word of knowledge, a word of or rather wisdom, then a word of knowledge, then faith, then discerning of spirits, then healing, then miracles, and then tongues and their interpretation. Now, I put tongues in red because we're not going to cover that one today. Next Sunday, the entire service sermon is going to be over tongues and interpretation of tongues. We don't have time to do all of them and give weight to tongues today uh, all in one sermon. So we're going to do it next week because there's so much out there, and you're, you probably hear so much. What, what does Scripture actually teach about tongues and their interpretation? So next Sunday morning, we'll look at the seventh one, but today we will look at the sixth manifestation gifts. Now, before we get to the gifts, we have to answer one question. Have the manifestation gifts ceased today? Have the manifestation gifts ended? And they're no longer for us today. Well, among Bible scholars, those people who, who are who I believe do a good job of interpreting Scripture accurately, I would say probably about 60 to 65 percent of those scholars believe that the gifts have ceased. They're no longer for us. About 35 to 40 percent of the, of the good scholars that are, that are no, they know biblical interpretation, 35 to 40 percent believe they have not ceased. And they are for us today. Now, of those that believe they have ceased, they are called cessationists. Obviously, they've ceased, so they call, they're called cessationists. Those that believe that they have not ceased are called continuationists. Obviously, the gifts are continuing. So if you read that, you'll see what they mean. Cessationists versus the continuationists. Now, here's a little background of the manifestation gifts I think that will help us. What were the manifestation gifts? They were a supernatural power of God, demonstration of the power of God to validate the truthfulness of the gospel. Let me say that again. They were a supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit to validate the truthfulness of the gospel. Today, we have the Bible. It instructs us. It validates truth. But what about in the days of Jesus? There was no Bible. There was the law. But the Bible is not complete. It was being made. It was being lived out. They hadn't recorded it yet. So, because of that, signs and miracles and wonders validated what he said. And then the disciples came along. The Acts of the Apostles in the book of Acts. No Bible. It's being written. And so 
their word, their message was validated, signs, miracles, wonders. And then you see the early church, the Apostle Paul. No Bible, it's being written. And so you have signs and miracles and wonders validating what was said. We know that because Acts 2.22 says, quote, Jesus was accredited by miracles, wonders, and signs. 2 Corinthians 2.12 says, quote, signs, wonders, and miracles marked an apostle. Acts 14.3, the miracles by Barnabas and Paul, quote, confirmed the gospel message. There was no completed Bible. They were necessary. So, some people say the gifts have ceased because the apostles have died and we have the complete and final revelation of God. Cessation is saved. We no longer need those gifts. We have this. So therefore, in 1 Corinthians 13, whatever it says, when the perfect comes, that which is partial we've done away with. In verse 10, prophecies cease, tongues cease, they'll cease. Continuationists, on the other hand, say, well, wait a minute, 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about that which is perfect has come, gifts will be done away with, tongues will be done away with, prophecy done away with. That's talking about the end of time. We're no longer here. Obviously, we don't need gifts when we're in heaven. So you have the two different theories. But let me ask you this. What about... What about those areas of the world today that do not have the Bible? Could God still manifest these gifts in those areas to validate the truth of what He tells us? Could God still use the manifestation gifts? In the regions, just as he did in the early church, when they didn't have the Bible. May they be needed there? Oh, Pastor, wait a minute. We're talking about a tiny fraction of the world. Everybody's got the Bible. Hold on. Let me read you something from Wycliffe Bible Translators as of September 1st, 2023. That's month. Wycliffe says there are 7,394 languages in the world. 7,394. Of those languages, how many of those have not the entire Bible, but only a portion, maybe only John, maybe only John 3, just a portion of the Bible in their language? How many? Of the 7,394 3,658, about 49%. So that means the number of languages out there with no gospel, no Bible, 3,736. 51% of the languages have no Scripture at all in their language. I've heard missionaries tell stories preaching on the field, no gospel, no Bible. 
and a miracle will happen, maybe they perform it, and the whole village starts listening to what they preach. Is that possible? Yeah. So maybe that factors into the cessationist, continuationists. How does that factor in? So having said that, let's look at the six manifestation gifts before tongues. Number one, word of wisdom. You'll see on the screen from verse 8, it literally means godly perception of reality. Lagos Sophia in Greek, word of wisdom. It's an unusual insight into God's way of perceiving reality. An unusual insight into the way God sees things as they really are. A word of wisdom will always confirm God's revealed word. It will never contradict it. Now, I know today, sometimes you hear in churches, well, I know what the Bible says, but wait a minute, wait a minute. God has given me a word of wisdom, and it contradicts the Bible. It's not a word of wisdom. It's not a gift. Notice, you may not notice in the, in the English, but in the Greek, there is no definite article before that. So it's not the gift of wisdom. It is a word of wisdom. Why is that important? Because the discourse, the message, is the gift, not the wisdom behind it, not the person behind it. It's the message. It's the gift. Not just having the gift and staying silent. It's a word it's a word for the church. I can see in a culture that does not have the Bible how a word of wisdom would be vital. Because you need to know how God sees things. Number two, word of knowledge. Verse eight, understanding God's mysteries. Lagos, kenosis, word, knowledge. This is an unusual insight into understanding the mysteries of God. Unusual insight into understanding God's mysteries. Very similar to a word of wisdom. In fact, some Bible scholars say word of wisdom and word of knowledge are the same gift. I separated them out into two gifts. I think they're two separate gifts. Some people say, no, they're just one gift. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge are the same gift. And maybe so, but I, I think it's two gifts, so I'm covering it as two gifts. But again, no definite article. So it's not the word of knowledge. It's a word of knowledge. So in other words, the discourse is the gift. Not the knowledge itself, not the person with the knowledge. It's the word of knowledge. And it's not just knowing something in your mind and keeping it to yourself. It's to build up the body. I can see in a culture with no Bible how the gift of knowledge is vital. Number three, the gift of faith. Verse 9. The gift of faith is an unusual ability to believe God. Now, don't get me wrong, every Christian has faith, or you're not a Christian. That's how you're saved, by grace through faith. 
So every single Christian has faith, but there are some Christians that have the gift of faith, which means you have an unusual ability, more than most Christians, to believe God when things are really tough, when things are dire, when circumstances look so bleak. You have that gift. I'm believing and trusting God. It doesn't matter how things look. That is the gift of faith. You saw this gift in Jesus' day. In fact, Jesus marveled at some people who had faith. Remember the only time Jesus was amazed? How do you amaze Jesus? He's God. The only time it says he was amazed at other people's faith. And then you go to the Acts of the Apostles and you see them being amazed at faith. And then you go to the early church and you hear Paul talk about faith, the gift of faith. You see, those people with the gift of faith, you put those people on the building committee at church. Those are the people that are going to believe God for things. So you don't put builders in construction. It's fine having builders in construction. That's fine. But you put people with the gift of faith on there. Those people should go on the finance committee, gift of faith. Oh, no, no. You, no, pastor, you put, you put financial people on the finance committee. That's fine putting financial people in there too. You've got to have people with the gift of faith on there. Because if all you have is financial people, you're going to do in church all that finances can do. But if you put those on there with the gift of faith, you're going to believe God for more than what finances can do. For what he can do. You put these people with the gift of faith on long-range planning committees. Because they see, they see what God can do and they believe him for it. It's a gift of faith. Number four, healings. The gift of healings, verse 9. Recovering from various kinds of sicknesses and illnesses. The abilities for healings to take place in order to validate the gospel message are point to a greater reality. Now, hold on a second. You didn't hear me say to relieve human suffering. That's a byproduct. That's not the purpose of healings. Now, today, we say, oh, well, you pray for so-and-so to be healed. They're just suffering so much. That's, that's wonderful that maybe we can relieve their suffering that was not the purpose of the healings. Whenever Jesus performed healings, whenever the disciples performed healings, whenever Paul and them performed healings in the early church, they were always to point to a greater reality and to validate the message they preached. That's the purpose of healings. Now, if human suffering being relieved was the only purpose of healings, Jesus would have been cruel to do anything for three and a half years, but to walk around 24-7 and just heal folks. That would be cruel not to if the purpose was to relieve suffering. That wasn't always the purpose. 
the purpose. He would do a miracle, and then he would turn around and teach the exact same thing he just performed. He would do a miracle, and then he would tell them, teach them a parable or, 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 or some kind of teaching and say, what, what did you just see? Well, he was teaching the disciples, validating the gospel and making a greater point. That's what healing is. Something happening where somebody is healed that validates this. That whenever you stand and say, thus says the Lord, they go, wow, listen to them. Did you see the miracle they performed? It's a purpose. Now, whenever Jesus healed, he, it didn't look like modern-day faith healers. There's a difference. Whenever Jesus healed... He, he always healed instantly. I mean, he healed somebody. It wasn't like, well, I'm, I'm better than I was, but ah. Uh. It's, they were cured immediately. Faith healers, are you better? I'm better. Well, you'll continue to get better. Praise the Lord. No, no, it was instant. Only one time it wasn't, one time instant. You remember the time he healed the blind man? And he says, what do you see? Well, I see people now, but they're kind of fuzzy, kind of like trees walking around. And then he said, now what do you see? Oh, yeah, okay, good. Okay, now I can see. And then he went to the disciples and said, your gradual understanding was like that gradual sight. You get it. And they did. Whenever Jesus healed it was total. He didn't say, okay, now put a little honey in water for the next two weeks and drink it every morning and you get up and it'll get better and better and better and better. No, no. They walked away healed totally instantly. Whenever Jesus healed, you could see what he healed. He never healed somebody with low back pain. You couldn't tell whether they're healed or not. He never healed somebody with heart palpitations, where you can see it or not. He never healed somebody of headaches, you couldn't see. He healed people who had an arm withered, and then it was good. Legs that were crippled, and they could walk. Skin that was leprous, and turn, it turned normal. You could see it. So many faith healers today healing things you can't see. You don't know if they're healed or not. Not Jesus. You knew. And... He raised the dead. I've never once seen a faith healer in a funeral home. But Jesus raised the dead. And then guess what? After he ascended, and the Bible's still not with us, still being written, the disciples, same thing. They healed instantly. They healed totally. They healed something you could see. They raised the dead. And then you go on further to the early church and you see signs and wonders and miracles while the Bible's being put together. Healings that validated the message. I've heard missionaries tell stories on the field. They're ministering and somebody is healed. The missionary will pray for a healing of a tribal chief or whoever, somebody in the community. They're healed. And the whole community's a buzz, and everybody starts listening to the missionary when he preaches. Is that possible? 
Number five, miracles. Supernatural workings of God. Dynamus is the word. We get the word dynamite. This is the gift of altering the natural course of events in order to point to a greater reality or validate the gospel. Jesus did it. The disciples did it. The early church did all perform miracles. Some today call events miracles, but they don't necessarily validate the gospel. I've, I've heard people call miracles before. I guess what, Pastor? I found a parking spot. It's a miracle. I mean, I drove around, and it wasn't there, and I drove back around, and I know it wasn't there the first time. It was a miracle. God took that car and poof, banished it. Did that validate the gospel in any way? No. I've heard this a while back. Not kidding. God raised a puppy from the dead. And the little girl was so happy that her puppy's back. Is that a New Testament miracle? I heard of a, of a washing machine being healed. Yeah, not making this up. You see, you see miracles pointed to a greater reality and validated this. Now, does God do the miraculous today? Absolutely. God does miracles all the time. Folks, salvation's a miracle. He just doesn't need people with the spiritual gift of miracles for them to always happen. And then the last gift is the discerning of spirits, the ability to distinguish the Spirit of God. The word discerning is dia krino. Krino means to judge. In Greek, dia means through, like diameter, through judgment. It's the ability to discern what is of God and what's not. Now, whenever Jesus was here, the disciples were here, the, the, early, church, the early church heard both true and false being preached. They had true prophets out there and false prophets. But folks, if you do not have this right here and you hear somebody preach, how do you know if it's right or not? You don't. So God gave some people the ability to distinguish between what is right and what is false. Now today, whenever you hear someone preach, whether it's from the pulpit, whether it's online, whether it's television, because there's a lot of false being spoken out there, you always gauge it by this. Always whether it's me, whoever, this is the final authority. So you gauge it by this. But can you imagine how in a culture that does not have this around 51% of the world, that somebody stands and preaches that it's an important gift that you have the ability to discern if that's right or not. The ability to distinguish. And I hope that you will distinguish between what is truly of God and what's false. So, these are the six manifestation gifts, and we'll talk about tongues, and interpretation of tongues, at length next Sunday. One story before I close. 
Some of you remember Donald Barnhouse. He, um, he had what was called a Bible study hour. He still has it. If you, sometimes if you tune, on, tune in to TV stations or radio stations, it'll still be called Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible. But he was the pastor of 10th Street Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years. Was actually a good Bible scholar and, and, and taught Scripture well. Passed away in 1960, I believe. He told the story before he passed away, and he used to tell the story only as Dr. Barnhouse can tell it, call people by their last name. He told the story, he attended the University of Chicago, one of his degrees, and he was at the University of Chicago Kent School of Law. You'll see the, the building here. The, um, in just a moment, you'll see the building there. <laughs> there you go, the Chicago Kent College of Law, founded in 1888, it's been there a long time. He was there one day, and he told this story. He said, I saw a man there who was a student, law student. He was blind. His name was Overton. He was blind. Great guy, great student. Uh, and then he said, a couple of weeks later, I was back, and I saw him in the stairwell of one of the buildings there, and he ran into a man who's also a law student, named Kasperic, who's also a law student there. From a birth defect, he had no arms their birth defect that he had. So they met each other and talked and got to be fast friends. And he said, then they started going everywhere together, whole campus. He said, you would, you would see Overton and Kasparic. Overton would be carrying the books because he had arms. And Kasparic would be taking him by the elbow and leading him around because he had eyes. And he said, they were everywhere. You saw them constantly together. They graduated the law school, both of them together, and Overton, the blind man, was the valedictorian of the class. So at graduation, they called him up to accept the valedictorian award, and they're presenting it to him and saying nice things about him. And he stops and says, no, 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 wait, wait, hold on a second. Kasparic needs to come up here. And so Kasparic walked up, and they're standing there together, and he said, I'm not where I am just by myself. I needed my eyes to get here. And they stood there together. And folks, that is a picture of the church. Some of you are the arms, but you have no eyes. Some of you are the eyes, but you have no arms. And as we are gifted all together and need each other, and serve together as a body, the body of Christ, we accomplish a whole lot more together. Where everything we do validates this message. Father, I want to thank you today for your goodness and your love, and thank you, Father, that you have gifted us in different ways to accomplish things we couldn't do on our own. And Father, I'm thankful today for the gifts that you give to us. May we use them to always point to a greater reality and not point to ourselves. Lord, I pray today for the decisions that need to be made. I mentioned a moment ago, Father, about those that, that need to trust you as Savior. And I pray that I have the courage in just a moment to, to walk up here and make that decision. But I also pray for others who need to make decisions today for you. Give them courage as well, in Jesus' name.